where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, before I give you the rundown on today's lineup, I want to take a second to thank some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a locally owned full-service grocery store in the heart of Des Moines. Gateway's Cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some distanced dining tables available, and you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. All right, so uh, later in the program, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman is going to join us. We're going to talk about the um, riot at the U.S. Capitol and um, how how QAnon and other folks who thought that would kind of be the big moment are retooling and reshaping their focus after what uh, they thought would happen didn't happen. We'll also be talking with uh, Charles about uh, uh, Joe Biden getting right to work on repairing some of um, the uh, damage, as some would say, that uh, President Trump did to laws protecting our environment. And um, I'll also uh, share an update on what I'm learning from my conversations with Iowa Trump voters. And then finally, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about a local initiative here to launch a food security task force. But first, I'm delighted to welcome to the program Janet Clark. Uh, She is an author. She's also a Trump voter. Uh, She and I have a lot in common. Uh, Well, we're about exactly the same age. I think we're born 12 days apart. Um, (laughs) We're both deeply concerned about the climate crisis. We both compost, we drive a Prius, we tend to limit our meat consumption, and we're both published authors. And we caucused for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Uh, Janet, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ed. Hey, so before we dig into things, um, you're an author. Two books. Uh, Tell us about, one is called Blind Faith. Yeah, well, Blind Faith um, was my first book. I wrote that in, uh, it was published 2007, early. And it is a story, or a story, of the Roman Catholic clergy abuse crisis. It's a novel, and it's told through the eyes of uh, a young boy and his family. I'm looking, I, I have a copy of Blind Faith, and I'm looking forward to reading it. And so, uh, what does what your political evolution look like? Well, I'm going to back up just a little bit. In 1976, I registered as a Democrat, and I cast my first vote for Jimmy Carter. Stayed a Democrat for some years, and I became a little more a little more conservative and had always felt strongly about pro-life issues, which I don't think is just abortion, but also war, like I said. And um, in 92, I did vote for, I was really for Tom Harkin, but I voted for Bill Clinton, and I just am still just sickened by the deep corruption in the Clinton, what General Colin Powell referred to in leaked, uh, WikiLeaks as um, the Clinton Mafia. But you did go on so, to vote for Obama as well, correct? I did. I did. In 96, I switched, and I was Republican for a few years. But then the Iraq War happened, and I was so, again, as a pro-life voter, I was very disturbed by that. So in 2004, I went back to the Democratic Party, and then 2008, I caucused for President Obama. I um, knocked doors for President Obama. I gave money. I was very enthusiastic about him. The first time, the second time, I was less enthused. He disappointed me in a number of ways, but I still voted for him Mm -hmm. and uh, still worked for him. But uh, yeah, 
I voted for President Obama. And then in 2016, this is where you and I have a, have a more recent political uh, similarity. We both uh, caucused for Bernie Sanders. Yes, I was, I was very excited about Bernie Sanders. I thought he had such a passion for the people, and I just felt he would be the best for our country. I, again, knocked doors, gave money, made phone calls. So, that was my first, first experience with recognizing election fraud. We saw people being made to cast provisional ballots that weren't going to be counted while they were there. We saw the Democratic Party changing rules midstream, like in Nevada. And we saw a massive amount of election fraud during the primaries. And I did join in the uh, DNC fraud lawsuit, which was property. And that lawsuit made it to the Supreme Court, where it's turned down on standing, or rather technicalities. They didn't say that the DNC hadn't committed prim- or election fraud. They just said that within their party, they could do whatever they wanted. Right, and I think I think I think I think a lot of people I think a lot of people shared your concern about the irregularities, shall we call them, in the uh, Democratic primary back in 2016, and then uh, and I shared that, and I I uh, I went on from that disappointment to vote for Hillary Clinton. You came to a different conclusion. I did. I I just I again I I think the corruption of the Clintons is just almost indescribable, but there's so much evidence for it. that I couldn't vote for her. I really, during that whole time between the oh the convention in July and the vote in November, I was sure that President Obama was going to do something. I thought he's not going to let them get away with committing election fraud. You know, I was a true believer. Mm-hmm. I thought he was right. going to fix. He was going to fix it. You had, you had voted for him twice, yeah, right? Yep, he didn't. And. Um, and what did you think? What, what did you think? What did you think Bernie Sanders would do in response to the, uh, the fraud? Well, I thought he would fight it more. And is that what drove you to support Trump when he didn't do that? Uh, no, it was more about when, you know, then as we got closer to the election, I would start listening to Trump's speeches and uh, going to his Facebook page and. Not just listening to what the media said that he had said, but listening to the entire, um, you know, to the entire speech, not just the little snippets that were taken out of context so often. And I saw a totally different person than what the media had, had portrayed him as. You know, I saw somebody who, for 30 years, had been saying, somebody needs to do something about the way our countries run. And people would say, well, are you going to run? And he'd say, no, I'm not going to run. But somebody needs to do something about it. He was very consistent during those 30 years. He said, America's uh, politicians are screwing us over. They're selling us out. They make trade deals that are not to the benefit of the American people. We have to pay more than our fair share in NATO. And he said, somebody needs to do something about it. Well, nobody did anything about it, so he ran. And how did you, I mean, what were the key issues that made you feel comfortable about voting for him? Well, like I said, I wasn't terribly comfortable. I was, I was scared, but I, <laughs> okay. I was, uh, you know, I was very much appreciative that he wanted to um, end TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which right. Bernie also wanted to uh, end. And Bill Moyers, who was a progressive voice on uh, public television, he said it would be the end of democracy if TPP passed. Yeah. So Trump ran on ending that, which he did. Um, 
reworking NAFTA, which he did. So that that was, uh, you know, those were a couple things that I felt he would really try to work trade trade deals that were better for the American people, but not harmful to the others. Like you said, NAFTA, it's not like it hurt us but helped somebody else. The only people it helped are the 1%. So it's always surprised me that Obama never did anything about that. Uh, and yeah, uh, it was uh, disappointing. What were some of the other concerns you had that you felt Donald Trump was speaking to? You mentioned your concern about war, for example. War. Well, yeah, he. Um, well, at the time, I didn't. I don't think I realized how good he was going to be on that issue. But he is the first president in 40 years to not get us in another war. The first president in 40 years to, to talk about the endless wars in the Middle East and how he wanted to get us out. And he was, you know, working on that goal. Now Biden has reversed it already and is sending troops. To more troops to Syria and Iraq. Hmm. And he, um, Trump also said, which really impressed me, um, the Iranians had shot down an American drone. And I, somebody, I would imagine the generals, were pressing for a certain military action. And President Trump said, how many people, meeting Iranians, how many people would be killed? And they said 150. And he said, one American drone is not work, worth 150 lives. Again, meaning 150 Iranian lives. Right. And I don't remember a president ever talking about the lives of our so-called enemies hmm. as having any value at all. You know, I was I was just really impressed with that. So let me ask you this. If, if, if a different candidate had won the um, Democratic primary in 2020, somebody other than Joe Biden, and there were plenty of candidates to choose from, was there anybody uh, running in the Democratic primary you could have supported for president? Not as a Democrat. I'm, I'm really thrilled that I am done with the Democrat. But if Tulsi were to run as an independent someday... And why is that? I think she has a lot of great ideas. She, she too, has a desire to end the wars in the Middle East. She has expressed concerns about abortion. She's an independent thinker, and she is willing to work across party lines. And you, you said you could vote for her, but not as a Democrat. Is that because... You just don't want to vote for anybody who has that label, or is it because you don't think the Democratic Party would ever let her get the nomination? Both. Do, do you see any... Um, yeah. any? I mean, they will not let that happen. You can go back to that George McGovern thing in 1984. The Democrats hold these progressive candidates out to lure in voters, but they don't let them win. They'll never let them win. And you would say the same as about Bernie Sanders? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know you and I are both um, very concerned about climate change, and that's one of the big reasons why I could never have supported Donald Trump. Uh, he's a climate denier, as I see it. But um, I guess I want to get your take on how, how, you see him, how you see him stacking up relevant to climate change. Well, I, I see most of the politicians just playing games with it, to tell you the truth. It is important to me, but I watched Bill McGibbon faithfully when we were on that 350. Bill McKibben's uh, uh, 350.org? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my understanding is once we passed 350, it was too late. Well, it's not too so, late, but it certainly gets more complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we're at, we're, yeah. At about, we're at about 411 parts per million of uh -huh. carbon in the atmosphere right now. And that, yeah. of course, doesn't, take, that, that doesn't even take into consideration methane and other greenhouse gases. So, yeah, it's a pretty serious situation. Well, I guess as far as Trump goes, he was far from the best on that, but um, I don't see any other viable politician making meaningful change. Do you feel, uh, do you feel that Biden's initial uh, actions on climate change are, are helpful? Is uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord 
and his reauthor I absolutely don't. Don't? And you know, why no, is that? Paris Climate Accord is just the slush fund for the rich. Which rich? I, I think, no, which rich? Yes. <laughs> American rich, other rich? <laughs> all, probably all of them. It's, it's just like um, all these other deals. They send money. It's a slush fund. It's funneled back to American rich or other rich. But it doesn't have to be I some kind of, at some point there has to be some kind of international cooperation to move it forward. I mean, that's one thing I hear from other Trump voters as well. We just can't take unilateral action in the U.S. We've got to deal with the fact that other countries are continuing to build coal-fired power plants, for example. Um, so, you know, at some point there does need to be some kind of a, an international effort, a, a cooperative collective response, no? I don't know. I, I don't know what that would look like. Well, and I would agree. If, uh, if such a response did merely uh, line the pockets of the super rich, uh, as, the, as a lot of the response to the COVID crisis has done, by the way, we, pro- we probably agree yeah. on that. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, but if, if that happens, that's a mistake. It's a lost opportunity, and it just makes the problem worse. But, um, I mean, at some point, there's got to be, you know, China, the U.S., Russia, the EU, these, these, these nations uh, that, that are dominant in terms of the, the, the economy globally, in terms of you know, global emissions. We've got to sit down and figure out some strategy, right? I don't think we can trust China at all for that. I think we'd be very foolish to trust China. Yeah, well, I, 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 their, their human rights record is horrible. Um, and, yeah, there's a lot of concerns about China beyond that. But, uh, I mean, right now they're, 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 they're emitting, I mean, we emit more carbon, more greenhouse gases, gases per capita than China does. But overall, because of their is large population. Is that what they say? How do we know that? Uh, that's pretty much accepted science. You know, it's, it's just. Okay. That's pretty much easy to measure and and uh, and, and nail down. But still, I mean, they, they somehow they got to be brought to the table. I mean, they they everybody's got to be at the table. And I, I think the challenge. I mean, if it's not the Paris Agreement, then then what brings people to the table to try to work out that that agreement that's fair and equitable and and effective and really based on science. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, that's that's, that's why they pay me the big bucks because I ask these good questions. Oh wait, wait, they don't pay me the big bucks. Sorry, I was wrong about that one. And I know, you know, that we can talk uh, a lot about political solutions to the climate crisis and certainly things that need to happen at the federal level. But I, I know that uh, I know you've been involved with um, local initiatives that are small scale, but still important. You mentioned that you helped to uh, plant a food forest in the Quad, quad Cities. Yes, Davenport uh, has a food forest and it was started about oh, maybe three years ago. I, I planted a few trees. There are a lot of people who've done a lot, lot more than I did. And uh, it's a really exciting initiative. I think we're one of the smaller cities to have done that. But the uh, the main thing is you're planting food that will be there for the community to come and, and take what they need. Hopefully they'll they'll work in exchange for that. Also a small community garden, I believe, is adjacent to the food forest. Good. Um, and the main goal is, obviously, it's not going to be your whole diet if it's pawpaws and nuts and, and raspberries, but to help people understand where our food comes from, that we become more self-sufficient as far as um, growing our own food, that we can be responsible, you know, for our own health, our own diet. And mm. that's, I think, one of the goals of Food Forest. Janet, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ed. Folks, when we come back, uh, Charles Goldman is going to be with us. We're going to talk about the Capitol riot and uh, what happens next to some of the groups that saw it as a pivotal moment. 
in expectation that Joe Biden was not, in the end, going to be seated as the U.S. president. We'll be back in a minute on the forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Back to the Fallon Forum, folks. This is Ed Fallon with you here in Des Moines, Iowa, bringing you voices from America's heartland. Uh, thanks to uh, Bold Iowa, one of our nonprofit uh, sponsors, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful, nonviolent means to push for change. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents. You can get information at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, welcome back to the program. With me now, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman. Charles, how you doing? And how's it going? It's going really, really well. Uh, beautiful day out there today. Snow falling, maybe a foot. It's real winter, and I like it. Oh, oh yeah, I know. It's, it's impressive how fast it's coming down. Yeah. Hey, so anyway, um, what else was very impressive? A couple of weeks ago, the uh, riot at the U.S. Capitol. Um, so many ways in which that um, the analysis of that is going to continue for a long, long time, and the responses to it are going to continue for a long time. But the um, what's it? What's what's uh, what's curious to me is. The conspiracy theorists who were involved with that, and there were quite a few of them, and they were, they were the front lines of the assault of the U.S. Capitol building. Where do they go from here? Because a lot of them really thought that was an apocalyptic moment. And lo and behold, Trump didn't bring out the, you know, Trump didn't, uh, you know, capture Biden and Clinton and Obama and execute them on, on national TV. Uh, I mean, some people really thought that was going to happen. And now they're feeling pretty disenfranchised. Well, some are. I, I, it, I think what's interesting is that, you know, the mainstream media, as it often does, is, is giving a very simplistic analysis of this. But, you know, I was reading today, um, the, you know, the Washington Examiner, you know, which is just another one of these, um, like, Mercer family-funded endeavors are one of them. Maybe it's uh, the Sung Young Moon, the the um, the Moonies. You know, Moonies. Yeah, uh, you know, ultra-conservative paper they give away basically in D.C. is talking about the great achievements of 
um, you know, the Trump administration, and um, talking about how the administration, you know, brought together and, and became a vehicle for the voices of the tens of millions who've been disenfranchised by, you know, the traditional two-party politics. And I didn't, you know, the, the people that were at the Capitol who were unspoken for previously was a strange amalgam of people. I mean, you had the Christian nationalists, you had, you know, the out-and-out white supremacists, and then, of course, you had a huge number of people who are uh, subscribers to the conspiracy theory of QAnon. And you also had and, people. You also had people who were just uh, fed up at seeing and a continued erosion of the middle class, seeing income inequality get worse and worse. You, well, you, I, you I had that too. That, yes, you did. But I, I would say that most of the people who were there had dual allegiances. Sure, I, I agree. I think, probably. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right that, that coming from areas that have been in their minds neglected. Um, you know, they're either their, their economy is neglected or their views on culture neglected. Um, but it has, made, it has made strange bedfellows of, in particular, these three groups. And, you know, the spillover between all of them, you know, a lot of the Christian nationalists are also QAnon subscribers. And, and, and the thing about QAnon is that a lot of the subscribers to QAnon are not the Waffle House Brigade, you know, um, they are people who are well educated, actually. Okay, you're gonna have to explain. Um, you're gonna have to explain the Waffle House Brigade. What's that? Well, the Waffle House Brigade are the 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 poor white Southerners. You know, the Waffle House, and, and maybe there's some in the Midwest too. Is sort of like even a level below Denny's in terms of a breakfast place. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think the people who looked at it said, "Oh, this is just the same crew that voted for President Trump," which is we erroneously said. Uh, unemployed, less than college-educated white males. But point of fact, the, the group that voted the most for Trump the first time was educated, college-educated white women. Sure, so and that, that changed in that 2020. Would, yes, but QAnon, I think, still represents a lot of upper-middle-class and at least college-educated, middle-class and upper-middle-class college-educated people. Right. And, um, you know, as... as you're probably aware, I, it, it's a bizarre conspiracy theory. First of all, sure. the question is, who's Q? Um, you know, Q is supposed to be inside the deep state. Some people thought it was Trump, but it was obviously not Trump because Q is fairly articulate. Um, you know, and um, that, you know, that, that Q was claiming that Trump was aware of a secret worldwide pedophile ring run by, of course, liberals and Democrats. Right. Um, and that there was the storm was going to come, um, and that Trump was going to, in the last days of the administration, uh, reveal this worldwide conspiracy, jail all Democrats and all their you know uh, fellow you know uh, uh, allies, and he was going to seize the presidency back with the help of the military. And it didn't happen. And, and so where do they go from here? I mean, they've, they've got to be uh, devastated. Well, it, it will go from here where all apocalyptic cults go, which is you just change the day when the storm's going to come. You know, and they'll go on for a while here. Certain people will peel off. But I think the, the driver of QAnon is... It, it, the 
It's an ability to try to explain a world that's not explainable. You know, the pandemic just adds on to this, right? So people, and, and this is relatively uniquely American. It's not only American, but the, the, the conspiratorial nature of politics in America is long lived, and Q is just a, another expression of a long line of conspiracy. So basically, of apocalyptic religion. So basically, we expect this to continue. But let me ask you this: um, impeachment yeah. is a hot topic right now, and there are people saying, "Yeah, got to move forward on impeachment. Uh, we've got to hold this guy accountable." There are others saying, "Don't just drop it. Forget about it. It's going to um, if you if you if you pursue impeachment." It's going to continue to uh, exacerbate that divide in the U.S. and also that it's going to continue to fuel the growth of this conspiracy-based movement. What do you think? Um, I think impeachment's a mistake for, uh, well, the, the Senate trial is a mistake for multiple reasons. And one is that we need to be focused on other things than this right now. Also, it will give the mass media another excuse to once again bombard us with information about Trump. I would rather, have you, have we had to hear about him for a week now? I heard, no. he, was, I heard he was I playing mean, some they golf. Showed, they showed one, right, they showed one picture of him playing golf, right? So this has been the best time in a long time because we haven't had to hear about him. But what, 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 maybe, maybe, all but, the trial's going to do okay. is bring him back into the news. Yeah, but, the, but, but, but should, back to him dominating the news. But shouldn't he be held accountable? Yes, but he can be held accountable other ways, and he's not guilty of what they're going to convict him of. Or and try to and him don't, of. don't you, wouldn't it be wise to, if, if, if you can possibly convict him, and that would prevent him from running for president again, wouldn't that be, no. wouldn't that be worth it? No. I'd, I'd like to see him run for president again because it would guarantee the Democrats winning. He's a liability. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you one, one more one more thing relevant yeah. to the uh, to the attack of the the U.S. the riot of the U.S. Capitol, um, and I, I don't this 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 may be a broader uh, issue than than QAnon, but uh, right now there is a renewed effort to push the Domestic Terror Act, and um, Democrats seem to be pretty split on it, and the ACLU, ACLU and a whole bunch of other uh, First Amendment groups are opposed to it. Uh, and you've got Tulsi Gabbard coming out with a strong statement about it on Fox News. And so it's a very interesting divide right now. But um, concern, of course, is that, well, you need this Domestic Terror Act to prevent these kinds of things from happening again. They're only going to get worse. And the other thing is, the other side is, well, we've already got rules, laws, uh, procedures for this. Don't exacerbate it. Don't, don't do anything that's going to take away more liberty, more freedom to further restrict the First Amendment. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't think we need a domestic version of the Patriot Act. We need a, a law which defines domestic terrorism because, you know, it's been pointed out by some of the uh, counterterrorism people at the FBI that essentially it's very – you cannot apply laws applicable to foreign terrorists, you know, outside the United States terrorists, to domestic terrorists. And that leaves them oftentimes – with nothing to charge these people with, people with except maybe weapons charges. And so I think we need a, a definition of domestic terrorism that is usable, but I don't think we need a replication of the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, issues that the Patriot Act brought up. So you would disagree, um, you would disagree with the ACLU and you'd want, you'd want to see Congress push forward with some limited version of a domestic terror act? 
I would want a limited version only in the sense of defining what constitutes domestic terrorism and um, have some discussion about what capabilities can be brought to bear inside the United States and who can and who can you know do those things otherwise we run into the same thing with Edward Snowden with a domestic spying program that right. nobody knew about that was running out of the NSA yeah huh. um, so no I, I I would like to see some as I say definition limited capability expansion but no I don't want to see another version of the Patriot Act uh, based on, on what happened at the Capitol. Hey, we got to take a quick break, Charles, but uh, stick with us. When we come back, folks, uh, Charles and I are going to discuss uh, the environment. Uh, Trump uh, did a lot to take on the environment on climate action, and it looks like Joe Biden is getting to work to reverse some of that. We want to discuss where he's going that and what might happen. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Back to the Fallon Forum, bringing you progressive voices from America's heartland. Here's, uh, here's our, our program, folks, uh, produced here in Des Moines, Iowa. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Hey, a quick shout-out to a couple of our local business partners, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a locally-owned full-service grocery store in the heart of Des Moines. Gateway's Cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some distanced dining tables available, and you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret in downtown Des Moines. Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. They've done a great job at making sure their setup works in protecting visitors, musicians, and staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can check out Joe, uh, Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, hey, thanks for uh, sticking with us, folks. And um, later in the program, we'll be talking about uh, talking about um, what I'm learning from the many conversations I'm having with uh, Iowa Trump voters. And Kathy Burns will be joining us still later. And we'll be talking about the Food Security Task Force. But right now, I want to bring back Charles Goldman into the conversation. Charles, are you still with us? Sure. Yeah. Hey, well, so um, Trump has uh, been noted, even by people who supported him, as being not great on the environment. Done a lot. Uh, a huge number of regula regulations that he has rolled back. And here we have Joe Biden coming on the scene um, 
day one, I mean, he gets sworn in, and the next thing you know, he's signing executive orders, one of them to uh, get us back in the, uh, climate, the Paris Climate Accord, another to cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Good start. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the one that is actually more critical, even though it's lower profile, is the Keystone Pipeline decision, because this project has been delayed so many times now that this is probably the, the end of it. Um, you know, and as you're aware, I mean, it's not really – the Keystone Pipeline exists. It's simply this was the connector across the border – from the tar sands up in, in the Alberta, known parts of Alberta in particular, to bring this toxic slurry uh, down through the United States so it could hook up to a pre-existing pipeline and it could be piped to um, Houston where it could then be um, refined and sent overseas. And there's already one, there's already a Keystone pipeline doing that. This is the Keystone XL pipeline, a different line, a Correct. shorter route. Doubling capacity, essentially. Right. So that's correct. Yeah, and and, and the, but there are other pipelines that are still um, in play here, including the number three, which is coming across line three, the Minnesota border. Yeah, yeah. right. And Dapple, which, uh, which again, uh, we, you know, Biden was pretty clear about his opposition to Dapple when we talked to him uh, last year, in 2019 and, and early 2020. So we're yeah. kind of waiting to see where, whether he'll go further than Keystone. Do you think he'll do something on Line 3, on DAPL, on some of the other pipelines? I, I think it's, it's certainly possible. I think the biggest issue is going to be that um, you do have an important Democratic Party constituency that, for short-term gain, supports these pipelines. Elements of labor, which, yeah. It, absolutely. And yeah. so, it, you know, the question is going to be, there needs to be a, a, a comprehensive addressing of why these are horrible ideas. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at tar sands. <laughs> I mean, in the most recent, you know, uh, attempt to, to get the American people somehow down with this idea, they said they were going to use renewable energy so that they would be, this would be a zero energy loss kind of thing, which doesn't include, of course, the fact that they take almost all the fresh water in Alberta, you know, heat it up, to then inject into the tar sands to solubilize the slurry of carbon material and then, you know, pipe it into this pipeline. Um, and, of course, all the trucks and everything else that, uh, you know, have to, to be used yeah. to, to do the work up there in, in a very unfavorable environment, which is not supposed to have water, hot water being run through it all the time. Right. Um, it, just, it, it makes no sense. I mean, you have to ask yourself... Is this resource that critical? And if it is, why is it this critical? Well, and, the, the, and that's the, 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 the big argument you hear now is that, oh, Biden just canceled the Keystone Pipeline and that caused 83,000 jobs to be lost. And, and that number keeps varying. You have, um, I think, Ted Nugent. Was that on Newsmax? Was that on Newsmax or um, Nation America? It was on Share It was on Save America. Uh, share, share to Save America. And then Ted Nugent... Um, Posted that it was twelve thousand dollars. Twelve thousand folks have lost their jobs. Someone else, um, some other location, some other Facebook post said eleven thousand U.S. workers. But um, <laughs> this is interesting. Uh, the uh, when you do fact check, when you fact check those numbers, and it's not eighty-three thousand jobs, it's not twelve thousand, it's not even eleven thousand jobs. It's one thousand jobs, 
and that is between the U.S. and Canada. And um, that's from TransCanada. That's from the that's from the company building the pipeline. That, that's mm-hmm. their number, not eleven thousand, twelve thousand, or eighty-three thousand. So, you know, but but you know, those numbers get out there, and people believe that. And again, my point is, yeah, these are these are this is a thousand jobs. Some of them American, some of them Canadian. But they're like like all jobs in that industry. They're temporary, and you can move on. You know, you're going to move on at one point uh, to another project. So you're just moving well, on a little sooner. I, exactly, and and why not send those same union workers to Flint, Michigan, to repipe their water system? That's a good start. Do things that would have value, you know. And and the other the other thing to realize, we've talked about this before. If all you do is continue to produce oil by various mechanisms, either by straightforward drilling or by tar sands or shale, you're just increasing the supply and driving the price down. And the biggest, the biggest hemorrhage of jobs in the oil industry is the unfeasibility of the projects like tar sands in terms of pricing. And the fact that there's a glut of oil that results from all of this activity that drives the price down, which makes the projects even more economically unfeasible to continue, and more jobs get hemorrhaged. Mm. You know, so the, the and the final thing is the oil and gas industry, in terms of the number of people who employs in this country, is relatively modest at this point compared to even things like solar and wind. Yeah. So. We, we continue to, to have a discussion about oil and gas jobs when those jobs could be shifted with retraining into renewable energy sources. Yeah, and be much more, and, much more long-term uh, stability as well. Right, and, and here, the other arguments you hear about the Keystone Pipeline, oh, it's going to increase American energy independence. That oil is all going out of the country. Yeah. They're not shipping it to Houston because it's staying in the United States. They're shipping it to Houston because as soon as it's refined, the huge, you know, the the, the huge plurality of it, majority well, of it, and, is going into and, the international market. And they don't have to refine it anymore now. And this is under Obama. A change was made that allows them to ship that uh, that that fuel prior to being uh, refined. Right. Yeah. So hey, what, let me with a little time we got left here. Um, some of the other, I, I mean. It's hard to know. There's so much. I mean, Trump, what, signed, what, was it a, a hundred regulations that, uh, or executive orders that rolled back environmental regulations? Well, how many of these is, how many of these yeah, is Biden going to be reasonably, how many can we reasonably expect him to address? Well, I think anything you did within 60 or 90 days, they can, they can roll back for the most part, because that's the same thing they did to Obama's regulations. Right. Um, I think some of them are going to be difficult because some of them went through formal rule-changing, you know, mechanism. Um, you know, the things like the leases up in the in Anwar. Yeah. Um, it's not really clear that they can that they can totally roll those back because they they rushed to auction them off. But who, now they're a permitting that they can interfere with, you know, for those projects. But um, I'm not sure. I don't think anybody knows at this point. But I don't think I don't uh, think uh, those uh, those uh, Anwar leases, leases. I don't think um, I, I thought most oil companies didn't bother to scoop them up. That's correct. But yeah. the state of Alaska evidently right. bought a bunch of them up. I don't so, know. What, yeah, I don't know what that means. Right. <laughs> Unless and, the state of Alaska yeah, becomes either. an oil company. You know, but twenty twenty five percent of the drilling for oil in the United States is done on public land. So. Um, 
I, I think it's going to take a little time to figure out what exactly they did. And remember, there, you know, there wasn't exactly a smooth transition here where they were particularly forthcoming. And we know that there was a bunch of people who were buried into positions when uh, Trump changed the essentially the civil service rules that, that allowing people could not be fired, you know, for their political uh, leanings or anything else. Um, so I'm not really sure. I don't think anybody knows at this point. I think that it was important that it shows the importance to this administration that on the first day they went after, you know, the the XL pipeline, which was very high profile, and and also, you know, said we're going to go back into the uh, Paris Accords, which, as we know from Ted Cruz, was about, you know, taking the interests of the citizens of Paris over those of the citizens of Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> that has to be one of the dumber the dumber things any politician has said in the past year. I mean, and there's a lot of competition for that honor, too. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, you know, Ted Cruz is an extraordinarily educated man. So he knows that wasn't true. But I guess somebody told him that was good messaging, you know, for well, the same people who thought it was 82,000 jobs that the Keystone Pipeline was going to bring. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, you know, there's... Freedom of speech is extremely important. The First Amendment uh, must be protected. What, yeah, that's why I really value though th- the fact check services, Snopes and others that that take the time to go in and analyze these statements. It's it's a shame that they're kept so busy, but they are. And what's up? And it's also a shame that more people don't refer to them. You know, when you hear one of these numbers, whether whether you're on the political left or the right, when you hear something like that, check it out. See what. See, see whether it's true or not. It's not that hard to find that information. Well, but, but I think, you know, it's interesting that you're saying that because, you know, one of the things I've been getting from your discussions with the Trump voters is that a lot of decision-making has nothing to do with facts. It has nothing to do with policies that we think are important. A lot of decision-making, you know, has become tribal and subjective, and, and it's how people feel. So they will tend to accept any fact or anything that's purporting to be a fact if it feels right to them, and particularly if it comes from a source that they feel comfortable with. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what's scary. I mean, we're devolving as a, as a species if this is what we're doing. Well, you know, some of us, maybe, Charles. Some, some of us are devolving. Others are, are moving very quickly toward enlightenment. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, anyway, hey, I, I got to run to a break here. Uh, thanks for joining us, Charles. Well, always a pleasure. Folks, we're talking with Charles Goldman. When we come back, we're going to talk, uh, going to kind of give you a summary of where we're going with my conversations with Iowa Trump voters. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. 
Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from snowy Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, uh, thanks to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Klipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's architecture by synthesis. All right, so as folks know, (laughs) I have been and will continue to talk with Iowans who voted for Donald Trump. We're doing uh, one interview a week, and I'm learning a lot. I've already done six interviews, and uh, it is amazing the diversity of reasons why people supported Donald Trump. It's it's surprising even even to me. Uh, You know, there are people who voted for him in 2020, because they, they voted hesitatingly for him in 2016, and they were surprised at how good they thought he did. And yet there are also people who voted for him in 2020 who did so grudgingly because they thought he did a really poor job as president. So, interestingly. But there are some consistent reasons, too. One is that Trump cannot be bought and paid for, and I, I have my disagreements about that, of course. They also cite that he's not a career politician, I guess you can make that argument. They also point out, this is pretty consistent, that he's good on trade treaties like NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm not sure, well, he didn't, he didn't uh, kick off the TPP, and that was good. Uh, I'm, not sure he's, I'm not sure what he created out of NAFTA is any better. That still warrants a lot of analysis, in my opinion. They also point out that he didn't, didn't approve an expansion of the Patriot Act, and I agree that that uh, is a good thing. And they also point out that he didn't get us into any new wars. Mixed bag there. I was really concerned about um, somebody that stable having his finger on the nuclear button. And also not sure I'm excited about a, another uh, branch of the military, the, uh, the space, uh, space Department. Uh, <laughs> that's an expansion of military power right there, even if it isn't a new war. But again, I, I, I concede. Uh, he didn't get us into any new wars. That's good. I think that's the first time that's happened since Jimmy Carter. So, um, you know, so interestingly, when I asked Trump voters among presidential Democrats, I should say Democrats who ran for president in 2020, and there were a lot of them, who do you like? And only two names are mentioned, Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. And I want to quote Yang, because Yang says something last year that got him into some trouble with some Democrats, but I think he was spot on. Yang said, and I quote, I would say to people when I was running for president, to a truck driver, a retail worker, a waitress in a diner, I would tell them I'm running for president, and they would say, what party? And I'd say, Democrat, and they would flinch, like I said something really negative, or I had just turned another color or something like that. Yang said that to um, Don Lemon, a CNN host uh, during a presidential panel last year. And so Yang continues, quote, So you have to ask yourself, what has the Democratic Party been standing for in their minds? 
And in their minds, the Democratic Party unfortunately has taken on this role of the coastal urban elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving their way of life that has been declining for years. I think Yang is on to something there. And, uh, you know, given that the, I just want to look at Iowa for a second here. Look, given the Iowa Democratic Party's new leadership just elected this past weekend, uh, my question is, what do Democrats have to do differently in order to address Yang's observations? What do they have to do specifically to begin to appeal to rural and blue-collar voters, the voters they've been losing in droves more and more every election? Now, Representative Ross Wilburn is the new IDP chair. He's a former city councilman in Iowa City. He was the mayor there for a term. He was just last year elected to the uh, state legislature representing Story County. And um, he has identified a three-election cycle strategic roadmap. Uh, Ross Wilburn says, quote, we've got to, well, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm pulling this from a, a document. I don't know if he actually said this or wrote it. I think he's done both. But he says, um, we've got to improve candidate and local leadership development. And secondly, we've got to work to become a better asset to county parties and other constituency groups. And third, we've got to improve the party's use of data. Okay, all fine and normal things that a political party does, but have you noticed that those three points, that uh, three-election cycle strategy is devoid of issues? It's, it does nothing to address Yang's concern, and, I say, and again, quoting Yang, quote, urban elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving blue-collar voters, rural voters' way of life that has been declining for years. I, again, I, I think, I, I don't know Ross Wilburn very well. I think I might have met him once or twice in passing when he was running for governor. Uh, you know, I, he seems like a nice guy. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really know him at all, but if this is, what, if this is the party's strategy for the three-cycle election, you know, three, the next three elections coming up, the Democratic Party is going to continue to decline. You know, Wilburn says, and I'll quote, this is a direct quote, we must engage more Iowans and convince the working class, farmers, factory workers, and our diverse constituencies that our party is on their side and will be at their side. Okay, good, fair enough. But you don't do that by this three-part three part strategy that doesn't address any of that, you know? And uh, one story I read about Wilburn's success at gaining the uh, enough votes to become the IDP chair is that um, uh, Wilburn, quote, has focused on diversity and inclusion in his campaigns for elected office. And, you know, diversity and inclusion is great, but, again, that does not get to the core problem. The focus has to be on the economy, and more broadly, on an economic model and, and economic policies that address income inequality, that address the declining state of affairs for more and more rank-and-file American working people. So that means, you know, tackling the CAFO problem, the confined animal feeding operation problem, the hog confinement problem. The Democrats have talked about it, but have done nothing to address. It means addressing uh, not just uh, rural farm issues, but, but issues of how main streets have continued to decline. You know, and it means tackling climate change and creating green jobs while addressing this uh, problem with the consolidation of power. We've seen that with wind energy. Mid-American is owning it all. So 
Yeah, I think until Democrats start addressing those things and showing through their actions that that's what they really stand for, that's what they're fighting for, then they're going to continue to decline. Anyway, we'll see where we'll see where this goes. I'm kind of glad that uh, I'm 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 wishing Ross Wilburn good luck. I'm hoping that uh, that he does a nice job in that capacity. We'll see what happens. Hey, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me, your host here, Ed Fallon, on the Fallon Forum. We're going to talk about the Food Security Task Force. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. back to the Fallon Forum and Fallon with you here. Hey, uh, thanks to our local business partners who helped make this program possible. Uh, thank you to Gateway Market and Cafe. That's my grocery store. They're locally owned and their cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, welcoming Kathy Burns to the program with uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We're excited to see an initiative move forward here in Des Moines that I think offers some great promise, the Food Security Task Force. Yep. Uh, the, the Food Security Task Force is focused on food security, and sometimes it's important to remember that food security and food insecurity, they're very related, but uh, just, just to give you some definitions, um, defined by the United Nations Committee on World Food Safety, food security is that all people at all times have physical, social, and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious foods, food that meets the, the food preferences and dietary needs for an active and healthy life. That's very comprehensive. Food insecurity, according to the USDA, is the lack of access, consistent access to enough food for an active, healthy life. So just the opposite of that. Um, we're doing urban farming here on Birds and Bees Urban Farm because we, you know, we value food security, our active, healthy life, right, um, right. and uh, and we grow about half of the food that we eat. We think uh, here on our own land, and um, this year that involves a lot of turnips, a lot, and turnip <laughs> greens. So um, we just want to be on the front end of mitigating the effects of climate change as well, because climate change is a major contributor. To food insecurity. I do notice there are, there are a lot of uh, food security task forces elsewhere, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And some of them deal specifically with food insecurity, with, mm -hmm. with populations that don't have access to healthy food, either too little food or in some cases just not good food. Mm -hmm. Like when I lived in, in Des Moines inner city, I mean, our grocery store was a quick trip. That's just not, uh, not going to cut it. 
But, you know, some countries, they are beginning to look at the broader concerns that you know, everybody's going to be uh, potentially food insecure if the worst impacts of climate change and accompanying other problems, social unrest, uh, income inequality, if all these things continue to mm. go forward, maybe another pandemic as well, then we're going to see food security be an issue that nearly everybody's got to deal with. I want to share an example. I was listening to NPR the other day, and there was a story about a couple who said they had never foreseen themselves being what they call climate migrants. They had lived outside of Reno, Nevada, with a view of the Sierra, lots of friends to play music with. They had a really, what they said was an ideal life. And as you can probably guess, this was a, a couple who um, has their needs met on a regular basis and is very, <laughs> and some, it very like. <laughs> food secure and very secure in other ways. Uh, but she had asthma and the wildfires in that area made it impossible for her to live comfortably mm. anymore. So they moved to northern New Hampshire and the story went on to describe Nashua, New Hampshire's efforts to establish uh, systems in their city to accommodate an influx of climate migrants. And one of those was making sure there was uh, food systems in place and uh, an enhancement of their food system so everybody could get access to what they needed. Yeah, and again, there are lots of folks who are facing the impacts of climate change right now and, and who have been facing those impacts for a long time who don't have the uh, capacity to flee to New Hampshire. But they, uh, they might be fleeing to Des Moines. They might have to flee somewhere, you know, but, uh, but this, is, this was a family that you know, could afford to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an indicator as to just how, how, uh, how much insecurity is, is potentially out there if, uh, if we see this trend continue. And I don't see any reason why it's not going to continue. Let's be honest about that. Well, people on the coasts are, are eventually going to have to come inland a little bit more. You hardly get more inland than Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> uh, we are between two rivers, but, uh, but, that, but they, we, they, we they... grow good food here. And we, yeah. we should be thinking, and everybody who lives in a city where they might have more mi climate migrants should be thinking about setting their cities up for mm. what's coming. Well, so yeah, what's happening in Des Moines is, I think... Uh, uh, interesting and more more kind of a big picture than, than some of the other initiatives. Mm -hmm. all, all these initiatives are important, but I, I kind of like where the uh, city of Des Moines is, uh, is planning to take this. Well, the task force will be uh, tackling th three specific goals in a six-month stint, and that's, you know, just the, the first time period that they'll be working together. Uh, the goals, I'm going to read these, working with the city manager to develop and promote urban agricultural practices through various activities as the manager may determine, such as creating links on the city's website regarding city codes, affecting food growing in the city, an FAQ document concerning urban agricultural laws and measures and other activities. The second is research best practices related to urban agriculture from other cities and urban areas, comparing the city practices with whatever recommendations or amendments uh, for amendments to Des Moines ordinances uh, might be based on those practices. And third, to develop a resource guide for inclusion in the city's website and other appropriate media for information about accessing materials that you would need. Uh, I'm not reading verbatim now, but yeah. materials that you would need to grow food in your own in your own uh, space. And this might be for either someone who wants to develop that commercially or just for personal consumption. Yeah. 
So it's a, I mean, there, there's a lot more to be accomplished if you want to really get to the point where your community is food secure. And my, my favorite example is an example of a place that some people don't like me to point to, but that's Cuba. Uh, you know, Cuba was really closely, they would join at the hip with the Soviet Union. And when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, that, that, there went uh, Cuba's oil supply, and along with its oil supply, its industrial system of agriculture. And so they were forced to adjust very quickly uh, to a sustainable, organic model of farming. Uh, and it, it, was a, it was a painful three years, but mm -hmm. they, they came through it. Um, there was some hunger. There was some rationing. Uh, but they came through it. And, and, you know, in Havana, the capital of Cuba, ended up being capable of producing even more food, uh, at least of certain certain varieties of food, that uh, than the city could consume. So there's, you know, the nice thing about what's happening here in Des Moines and some other places is that maybe we're doing this soon mm -hmm. enough where we won't have to be in emergency mode like Cuba was, where boom, all of a sudden their, you know, their agriculture just fell apart instantly. The time is right, and we saw disruptions to our food systems Early last year, when the coronavirus pandemic uh, became such a, a heavy reality, people were wanting to start growing their own food because there was some hoarding at stores. And then people found to their dismay that they, they couldn't buy seeds uh, at, in their normal locations because everybody was buying them up. They couldn't get seeds. People wanted to start laying flocks in their backyards, hens. Um, the chicks were not available to everyone. Uh, we had a lot of requests. How do I start a chicken coop in my yard? And so first, you need some chicks. <laughs> the supplies, the supplies, the knowledge, the, just the the habits and the infrastructure. It takes years to put together, and and I'm proud that Des Moines is going to be on the front end of this. Yeah, and I think it's a good plan. Is uh, there was some of the input from the city council. Uh, one one or two of the members was, you know, don't take on too much. <laughs> I even, need to be reminded of that. <laughs> even though this is a even though this is a huge problem and an urgent problem. And a, and, a, and a multifaceted challenge, don't take off too much at once. Mm -hmm. And so I think the initial charge to be focused on, and again, the, the right, right now I think the focus is what people can do to grow food at their own home places. But, but you know, I, I mean, look at the, uh, the first guest on this program talked about the food forest being that was established True. in the Quad Cities that in Davenport. Very interesting. And we had a guest on from Wyoming a mm -hmm. while back who was involved with the food forest in, in that city, a small city in Wyoming. You know, so that's, that's an issue. Um, networking with area farms, uh, making it easier to be a farmer in the city. There's lots of obstacles to that. You know, there's so many things that need to happen. So it's exciting to see that, see that move forward. Yeah. Anyway, last words? Um, well, just, just bon appetit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> bon appetit. And may you enjoy a healthy crop of turnips. And another good good. We're gonna, we're gonna have a meal here soon where every every item on the agenda is on the menu is turnips of some type. And actually, it's gonna be a great meal. I know it is. It's gonna be a great meal. <laughs> I found a recipe for turnip cake that's we're gonna, gonna blow our minds. We're gonna make turnips great again. <laughs> All right. So hey, making the uh, Fallon Forum great again. My guests uh, Janet Clark, uh, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Kathy and Sherry Herdina, our production team. Thanks to the stations in Iowa and elsewhere around the country that rebroadcast this program. Please follow us on either Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and of course on Facebook. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for being a part of the Fallon Forum. <laughs>